0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's always a joy to bring the Word of God to God's people. Uh, I want to thank everyone who supported me and prayed with me uh, during that ordination council last Friday. And thank you for everyone who came out um, as well. As you could tell, I was very nervous, but the Lord got me through it, right? Those questions were not easy. Well, today, as Pastor Nathan mentioned, we're going to continue our series in Second Peter. And so why don't we stand for the reading of God's word in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. If you got it, say amen. All right, let's read. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. You may be seated. Let us pray for the Lord to bless this time in his word. Lord God, we thank you uh, just for all that you're doing at the Bible Church. Um, Lord, it's just a blessing to be here and to gather with fellow saints that, that sing to you, that love you. And, and so, Lord, we want to uh, grow in our faith. We want to read this text and understand it and apply it as, as Brother John prayed. Please, Lord, be with us. Convict our hearts for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 20 years ago, I remember working on a school project. You might have done this in science class where you had a plant, your first plant, right? So you got the soil, the seed, and that small little pot with maybe some stickers on it, you know, smiley faces. And every day you came to school and you would grab that ruler of yours and you would just check if it grew an inch, And you were happy, like, oh, my my flower, my my plant is growing. And so you made sure to supply water and, and sunshine, right? You made sure you were right by the window with that sun coming in. And you would push the other pots out the way. Make sure your pot got the most sunshine. And after a couple of weeks, the plant would grow. You would see that root just pushing through the seed coat. And rooting and sprouting were your new ferret words. And so this plant life cycle is beautiful. Back then, I didn't really think about how that little plant would picture my faith one day. As Christians, our faith needs to be supplied, not with water and sunshine, but with key virtues that we're going to learn from our passage in Second Peter. Two weeks ago, we learned about how faith is granted. God has gifted us the ability to place our faith in him. Our focus was on how God started our faith. If I could summarize it in one verse, it would be Matthew 15, 13. Jesus says, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. And so God is the one that plants us in the faith. But that doesn't mean we sit around and act like plants. We know that our faith isn't this beautiful diamond ring to look at. Our faith is going to be tested in fiery trials, and our faith must grow. And so the question for us today is, what does our faith have to grow in? Peter gives us the answer in the verses we're going to examine today. And this should challenge us to look at our faith and see, are we growing in these areas? Are we a tree that has fruit for others to see and be edified, or are we a tree that has no fruit? It should concern us if we say we are a Christian, but we're not spiritually growing. And so our faith could be like the religious hypocrites. And and Jesus told us how to spot these false teachers. He says in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruits. Right? Every good tree produces good fruit and every bad tree produces bad fruit. In our passage, we're dealing with virtues in faith that are similar to fruit of a tree. And so our faith has the potential to be a good tree or a bad tree. So the question is, how can you tell the difference? It's pretty straightforward. You're going to look at the fruit of the tree. In other words, is your faith supplied or is it being suppressed? So we're going to consider seven virtues that must be supplied to our faith. And throughout this time, I'm going to also point out some ways false teachers skew the virtues and then also remind you of the importance of obedience. And so let's read 2 Peter 1, verse 5 again here and learn about the first virtue that must be added to faith. It says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence. And so what is Peter doing here in verse 5? He's going to remind us of the Christian's duty and effort that should take place in our walk of faith. The text begins now for this very reason. So what is Peter doing? He's reflecting on the fact of our new life in Christ that we turned our back on the world. And now we have this precious and magnificent promises offered to us in Christ. And so we have no excuse but to obey God. And so for this reason, we cannot sit back and rest content with a little faith. Since we are called to a holy calling, it will demand a mature faith on our part. And so, however, this is very important throughout, you're going to hear me say this, throughout this growth of our faith, we must remember that if it's not by the grace of God, we won't be growing. It's because of his grace that we can have this effort. And so God is the one who gives us the strength to keep going. So don't forget that your faith had to be granted before it was supplied. Next part of the verse states, applying all diligence. Peter is calling for an attitude of eagerness and zeal. And so you got to say goodbye to laziness and self-indulgence. You cannot be diligent in your faith and half-hearted. After all, God calls us to love him. Love him with all our hearts. Now, when we think about effort, we often think about sports, right? Uh, You might say that sprinter or that boxer gave it his all. We can picture the sweat, the blood, the tears. This man is just bruised up and he's tired. And so he's reaching for a towel or a bottle of water to be refreshed so he can persevere. As believers, we are in a marathon. We are in a fight with more than 100 rounds. It's exhausting. But Peter is calling us to a wise mindset, a determined mindset to finish the race. But again, like I mentioned, this effort is not apart from the work of God. We have this tension in our faith. I want you to turn to Philippians 2, just to observe this tension here. A couple books to your left. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 It reads, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And look what he says here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we do need effort and determination in this good fight of faith. Yes, we do, but can we fight apart from God working in us? No, we need both the grace of God and the grit of man. So I want you to think about all that Paul went through in his fight of faith. I think he's a good example. We read in Corinthians, five times he received from the Jews 39 lashes. He was beaten with rods three times and stoned, right? And these beatings could have easily killed him. And Paul went, a lot, went through a lot more than this, right? We read in Corinthians how he even asked the Lord to deliver him from a messenger of Satan that was tormenting him. And the Lord told him that his grace was sufficient for him for powers perfected in weakness. And so how does Paul respond? He responds with determination to keep enduring. We see that he has real faith in 2 Corinthians 12.9. Listen to what he says. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so then the next time your spouse doesn't uh, do something you like or maybe when someone takes your parking spot, humble yourself. Remember that you're called to give your whole heart To grow in this faith, whatever the trial. And it probably won't be as intense as Paul. But I think we know that we need to follow no matter what. Think about what he did uh, during this trial. He prays to the Lord, right? And the Lord obviously doesn't give him what he wants. But he's praying to the Lord, your will and my will be done. And he remained steadfast in the trial. He understood that God had a purpose with those trials and he allows the trials to produce endurance in his faith. In a similar way, Peter is going to tell us to grow on our faith. He says in chapter, uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 5 here uh, of Second Peter, he says to supply, in your faith supply. In the task of Christian development, believers must contribute what God rightly demands of them. Yes, God has given us faith, right? We learned about that a couple weeks ago. But that doesn't mean we're not responsible. Uh, When I was 18, my my father, he gave me a car. Now, that didn't mean that I could drive how fast I wanted, right? I had to be responsible with that car. And so we have a faith from God, but we also have a command to follow from God. And the word here is to supply. It's in the aorist tense. And so this means it's this urgent imperative from Peter It's like he's saying, we should be doing this already. A true faith is one that is supplied. The active verb to supply is also translated to give or to add. And so it has this idea of furnishing. Have you ever decorated a bedroom? You added different pieces of furniture to make it a functional room. And so otherwise, what do you have? It's just an empty room, maybe with some boxes, and it has no use. So we must add to the room of faith... ...that we live in. And we're going to see in a little bit what type of furniture we have to add. But for now, just remember, it's going to take diligence. right? I mean, maybe you've moved recently and it's a lot of work getting those uh, rooms decorated. It's going to take obedience on our part. And let me remind you that obedience isn't a one-time thing. It's something we need to be disciplined in. Uh, I'll give you an example. One of the hardest things uh, that I had to do was go to swimming practice in high school on a Saturday morning at 6 a.m. And so every time I took a dive into the cold water, I felt like I was in a bad dream. I was like, not this again. I couldn't stop thinking, why am I doing this? Why don't I just quit? But when it was time for the race, I realized all that preparation and discipline was not useless. My time was getting better, and the team benefited because of my growth. As believers, we're going to be tempted to quit this race of faith but what do we need to do we need to fix our eyes on jesus the author and perfecter of faith according to hebrews 12:1, there have been many that have ran this race before us right you read there in hebrews 11 abel enoch noah abraham sarah isaac jacob joseph moses rahab and plenty of others what got done to the finish line they had a real faith that was supplied their faith was one that endured many trials And so before we begin this list of virtues that Peter commands us to be added to our faith, we must not overlook how he starts the list, right? He says, in your faith supply. Peter begins his list with faith. Faith is the foundation stone on which all the other virtues which follow are built. And so before we get into the list of virtues, I want you to be reminded of the importance of your faith. It's picture the house right you're all these different rooms you're going to decorate and we have faith as the foundation right without the foundation your house will collapse. I mean there really isn't a house without the foundation and so we need faith. We're called to have this loyalty to God and trust in him alone. However, you can't grow in your relationship with God if you do not have a relationship with him. And so faith is how we respond to God's call and come to know his son. In other words, you need the right faith before you can practice your faith. So last time we read Ephesians 2.8 to observe how faith is a gift from God. Today I want us to look at the book of Ephesians again, and I want you to see how faith is put into practice. So go to uh, Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 verse 16. says in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and so notice that our faith will be attacked we have a real enemy after us the devil prowls around like a roaring lying seeking someone to devour and he is determined to destroy you and he will if you don't have faith Jesus prayed for his sheep to be guarded from the evil one in John 17, but he did not pray for us to be taken out of the world. And so although we've committed our lives to Christ, we've turned our back on this world, we still live in this world. And if you do not lean on the Lord and trust in him in difficult trials, you will be chewed up like a dog toy. It's only by faith in Christ that you will survive the devil's attacks. But this faith isn't a faith that isn't supplied. This faith is able to withstand so much because it's grown so much. It has grown in many areas. And so let's begin with the first one that Peter mentioned. So 2 Peter chapter 5, uh, uh, verse 5, says, In your faith supply moral excellence. Moral excellence describes God's quality of goodness and generosity. Towards others, right? This is Peter essentially calling them to be like Christ. That likeness cannot be acquired except through personal and continuous encounter with Jesus by faith. Approaching the throne of grace daily and spending time with Jesus will transform the man that didn't look nothing like Christ into someone that walks like him. Others will soon begin to see the difference in his character. On the other hand, false teachers who talk like they have faith, will not display this practical goodness, which is essential to Christian discipleship. False teachers, they embrace the lowest forms of vice. And so Peter, he borrowed this word for moral excellence from the common Greek world to correct the false view of virtue. And so it's not about simply doing good just to do good. Yeah, I'm a good person, I'm doing good. We see that a lot in today's world, right? A philanthropist can do a lot of good, but with no motive to glorify God. And God desires us to practice our faith with courage, energy, and in Christ's likeness. We do not do good to look good in front of others. We do good so others can be pointed to the one who is good. And so Peter uses the same word for excellence if you go back to verse 3, when he said that we're called By the glory and excellence of Jesus. That's the type of excellence our faith needs. And so we need to grow in our faith by being like Jesus. Do you reflect his goodness? Let's continue to the next part of Peter's list here. It says in 2 Peter 1.5, In your moral excellence knowledge. Peter calls us to supply knowledge to our faith. Christianity is not merely a matter of personal faith and practical goodness. Christianity has an intellectual element, right? We have a personality with the intellect. In other words, there is a place for practical wisdom in our faith. This wisdom distinguishes the good from the bad and shows the way of flight from evil. Our daily life will be faced with choices. And we need knowledge or practical wisdom to discern between right and wrong. Knowledge is what is necessary to act wisely. Without wisdom and knowledge, we will not be able to discern God's will and live accordance to his will. And so we know that uh, knowledge is one of the favorite words of the false teachers. They thought they knew a lot about the ways of God, but if you keep reading in Second Peter, they're exposed in their supposed knowledge when they forsook the right way. And went astray from the truth. And so what's the cure? The cure for false knowledge is not less knowledge, but more knowledge of Christ characterized by moral insight. What does Peter end his letter with? He ends it with a command to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in Colossians 2.3, Paul tells us where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in. It's hidden in Christ. And so, beloved, if you want to grow in knowledge, you need to cling to Christ. You need to get to know him more. And so we examine how faith is accompanied by moral excellence and knowledge. They belong together. So whenever someone says they have knowledge but no moral excellence, then you should throw the challenge flag. This can't be. After further review in the text, that faith is incomplete. And so let's continue to the next virtue. You read here in 2 Peter 1, it says, And in your knowledge, self-control. Our faith needs to be supplied with self-control. And so Peter emphasized the true knowledge leads on to self-control. That's what our whole life uh, should demonstrate, that we're able to exercise this self-control. Self-control is about controlling passions instead of being controlled by them. You know, maybe you can think of your phone. Uh, Does it control you? Are you always on it? Are you able to say no? Uh, Maybe it's fast food. You're eating it every day, or you're able to say no. Uh, Ice cream, whatever it is, are you able to say no to these passions you may have? Now, moral excellence, like self-control, was highly prized in Greek moral philosophy. They viewed it uh, self control as the ability of human of the human being to act entirely of one 's free will without being subject to the whims and pressures of other people 's uh, competing philosophies or even one 's own emotions, and so you think about it like uh, do you have self control even on on getting upset or getting frustrated so that 's what the Greek moral philosophy viewed it as socrates i 'll give you an example he said. Should not every man hold self-control to be the foundation of all virtue and first lay this foundation firmly in this whole? For whom without this can learn any good or practice it worthily? Then we have Aristotle who said, The unrestrained man does the things that he knows to be evil under the influence of passion, whereas the self-restrained man, knowing that his desires are evil, refuses to follow them on principle. But what does the word say? New Testament writers, we know that self-control is a manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. If you know Galatians 5, we, th- we have there another list by Paul. Uh, and, and, and so we have this reminder of the Spirit's work in us to be who we're called to be. Self-control enables believers to avoid falling prey to temptations, especially sexual, that are so inescapable in the world we live in. So let's be honest. The world is becoming more open about their sexual views, right? You think about this month, uh, the month of June. There, uh, you can go on any social media site, and you're going to see just promotion of homosexuality and, and different sins. And so, will we get desensitized by what we watch, or will we flee that which is unholy? Another important point about self-control is the purpose for it. Believers. Do not have self-control to impress man. We have self-control to glorify God, right? So when others see our good works, we're going to point them to Jesus. They say, well, you have a lot of self-control. Yeah, it's because of the spirit in me. And so again, this is a direct contrast to the false teachers who act like they're holy and self-control, right? Talking about the the Greek moral philosophy. They they, they valued it so much, and and they pictured it like, look at you with all this self-control, they... But, but what happens? They, they put a mask on, right? They act like they don't sin. But behind closed doors and when no one's looking, that's where self-control is truly observed. And so have you been growing in this area of self-control? Or have you been controlled by the world and its sinful pleasures? Let's continue here in 2 Peter. It says in verse 6, In your self-control, perseverance. We need to supply our faith with perseverance. Now, perseverance is the attitude of mind which is unmoved by difficulty and distress. It's the ability to stand under a heavy load. I don't know if you ever lifted maybe something like 50, 100 pounds. It is heavy. There's pressure. But it's more than just an attitude of inner calm in the midst of fr- uh, frustration and irritation. This is about the power of endurance which is developed by a persistent self-control. It means you are able to withstand the opposition from the world without and from the enticement of the flesh within. Another picture of endurance is that mature Christian who doesn't give up in persecution. One example of this is we know in Acts 7 with Stephen being stoned to death, but he's praying for his enemies. And although we're called to have this endurance or in persecution, What's Peter's main focus here? It's about moral endurance amid the pressures of temptation. Last week, Pastor Nathan spoke about a man of God fleeing sin. And he shared an example of Joseph fleeing sexual temptation from an adulterous woman. And so listen to what Joseph was thinking in the middle of this temptation. How then can I do this great evil and sin against God? So Joseph's greatest concern in life was to obey God. And even though the woman tempted Joseph many times, he didn't listen to her. That's the type of perseverance we show in self-control. We deny the pleasures of the world over and over again, even if it means we're going to get thrown in jail. The mature Christian understands that his faith will be tested and he counts the cost, right? He understands Luke 9, 23, where he has to take up his cross daily and follow Christ. To, To save his life, he will have to lose it. He understands the cost. The diligent saint is disciplined and determined to obey his king. If you read in 1 Corinthians 9, actually, let's go there. I think it will be good for us to look at this. To get a better picture of self-control and discipline, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27. And if you notice, I like my sports, and I use a lot of sports analogies. Well, so did Paul. And he knew during this time uh, many people... Uh, we're into the sports, those Greeks. So look at First um, Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. All right, so it's okay to be competitive in your spiritual life. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be uh, disqualified. And so are you growing in this area of perseverance How are you going to grow? You need to keep your eyes on Jesus. You need to keep your eyes on the prize, right? You read about Paul in Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14, how he's just upholding this prize. He's keeping his eyes, he's forgetting what is behind and looking forward to what is ahead. Beloved, we need to do that. All right, let's continue here to 2 Peter 1, 6, uh, to the next virtue. As believers, we need to grow in our godliness our faith must be supplied with godliness john calvin writes that perseverance may be retained add godliness that is prayer to god prayer will be key in our growth in godliness if you're not praying you will not grow in this area period Godliness is the attitude of reverence that seeks to please God in all things. And so a godly person has this practical awareness of God in every aspect of life and he fears him. The godly person's also careful and correct in performing his duties both to God and man. And so what do I mean by that? Um, you know, are you someone at work wherever you're working? Maybe a lawyer, doctor. Um, can they say you're a good employee? Can they say that He does as he's commanded to do, and they can depend on you, right? And so the godly person works hard. How does that godly person look like? It's a mature Christian who defends the truth with patience. And so maybe you might lose your cool when someone disagrees with you. It's so important that we understand godliness keeps you from being so hard and defiant towards your opponents, And when you're sharing your faith, you're able to do so with gentleness and love for the person who doesn't know Christ. But false teachers, on the other hand, they can't wait to demolish another person's argument. Peter most likely brought up this word godliness in deliberate contrast to the false teachers who were far from proper in their behavior both to God and their fellow man. The false teachers, we know, they were greedy. They thought religion was just a good way to make money. And so a godly Christian will not love money. They will be people of prayer, and they will not compromise their faith for anything. You can throw them a million dollars in their face and say, just deny your faith, right? Just forget Christ. Here's a million dollars, and they're going to say no a million times. Peter uses this word godliness in verse 3, if you're there in Second Peter. And it should remind us that God has granted to us everything pertaining to life, and godliness, So we can grow in this area because God has provided, right? Remember, he gave us his Holy Spirit. And so we should obey God and follow this calling to supply godliness to our faith. So far, we examined the need to supply our faith with moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, and godliness. Peter continues in verse 7 with two more important virtues. Verse 7 says, And in your godliness, brotherly, so we must supply our faith with this brotherly kindness godliness cannot exist without brotherly kindness I mentioned that godliness is the attitude of reverence that seeks to please God in all things Now imagine trying to be godly without having brotherly kindness. It doesn't work If the godly believer is pleased with God in his holiness, he will be pleased to love his brothers And if the godly believer is patient with man and their sinfulness, he will be able to love his brothers, even those who have sinned against him. And so what is brotherly kindness? Brotherly kindness is Philadelphia in the Greek. It is the combination of love and brothers. So it means love among fellow brothers. It implies this personal warmth and affection. So you could picture just people bonding or having fellowship, right? Some of us do this by watching our favorite sports team. Or or maybe we do a hobby, go golfing, or go play a softball game. There's this sweet unity, right? Even with people you just met, since you have something so precious in common that you know Christ. So you have this unity with one another. And so ask yourself, do you have this type of love towards some of the brothers and sisters in this room today? This love for Christian brethren is the distinguishing mark of true discipleship and represents yet another area where the false teachers were lacking. False teachers do not have each other's backs. They care for themselves first. They're selfish, right? If they can steal your congregation from you, they're going to do it. If, If it means that they just have to lie or slander about another church to get more members and more money, they'll do it. That's not love. That's hatred. Love for the brethren entails bearing one another's burdens. It means guarding that spirit given unity from destruction by gossip and prejudice. There should always be this attitude of a caring love for each other so that when differences arise, and they surely will, there could be not even a rise in the temperature when we talk to one another. And so we have to learn how to discuss our differences in a calm manner if we're going to love our brother properly. So, when we are showing this type of love we know it's 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 a person that prays for another beloved brother they're not talking back or talking behind their brothers backs and they don't look down on their brothers even if they have a different eschatology view right this this type of love is a mikasa estukasa type of love it pictures this welcoming come home you know come to my house you know have have a dinner with me it pictures acts of kindness as simple as saying Good morning, right? Opening the door for your brother in Christ that just came into church. Maybe a smile, right, when, you, when they pass you by. It could be a phone call on your birthday. A text that says, I'm thinking about you. Anything you need prayer about? But I must mention one important thing if you want to grow in this area. You won't be able to love properly if you don't understand how amazing God's love is. This is another reason we need to be in God's word. We need to learn more about how great our God is. The more we study, the more we will be inclined to love his people that he died for. Romans 12, Romans 12, 10, we see um, this word Philadelphia. And it tells us here to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And if you read in Romans 12, it's surrounded by so many action verbs, right? I'll give you a handful here. Giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer and to contribute to the needs of the saints. And so the love we have for our brothers in Christ will be active. It will be time consuming. Another instance we find the word Philadelphia is in 1 Peter uh, one twenty-two. So go to your chapter to your left. We see here this word for brotherly love. 1 Peter one twenty two. It reads, Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. Peter reminds us that our love for one another shouldn't be hypocritical. Since our hearts have been changed by Christ, we can share the true love of Christ. Another time we observe this word Philadelphia is in chapter 3, verse 8. So look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. There we're told to be brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. And so we see that humility and brotherly kindness go hand in hand. You won't properly love your brother in Christ if you do not humble yourself and consider their interests before your own. Another point to make about brotherly kindness is that we're called to grow in this area in other scriptures, right? We see this throughout scripture to grow in this love. Let's go to First Thessalonians chapter 4. A couple books here left. Look at verses 9 to 10. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 10. Now as to the love of the brethren, Philadelphia, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So in other words, you can never love enough. So we need to keep loving our brothers in Christ which brings us to our last virtue in 2 Peter 1:7. It says in your brotherly kindness love. We must supply love to our faith. And so we made it to the climax of the list, right? Some picture it as a ladder. You start with the first ladder of faith and then you get all the way to the top. Um, I just picture myself going on, on the roof. I was with Brother John and, and and we made sure that the ladder was just firm, ready to go up to the roof. And so we made it to the roof. We made it to the roof. It's love. And the word love is the second most used word from our list throughout the New Testament right behind faith. And so Peter started with what mattered most, faith, but he ended with what is needed most, love. And his list of virtues Began with faith and ends in love, and so these are the indispensable root and fruit of Christian ethical behavior. This word love, or agape in the Greek, denotes the attitude which God has shown himself to have to us and requires from us towards himself. So, what's the difference between Philadelphia love and agape love? In friendship, or Philadelphia love, the partners seek this mutual comfort, right? This mutual unity. God's love, or agape love, is evoked not by what we are, but by who he is. Agape love has its origin in the agent, not in the object. It is not that we're lovable, but it's that God is love. And so this agape love might be defined as a deliberate desire for the highest good of the one loved, which shows itself in sacrificial action for that person's good. In other words, this agape love seeks the welfare of the one loved. And love is that glue that holds all the rest of the virtues together. Without this virtue, the others will be less than they should be. Agape love is similar to brotherly kindness because they both include a love for the brothers in Christ, but this agape love extends to even loving your enemies. It's a love that doesn't expect anything back. This love labors. Just picture a mother with her newborn baby not getting any sleep. It's a 24 7 love. And this love is more than just a phone call. This love is, I care about you. I will cry with you. I will serve you, even if it means sacrifice. You know, I think of, I believe it's D.A. Carson, or or a theologian, a scholar, who his wife was, um, you know, not able to move. Uh, she was on bed, and, and so he had to take care of her for the rest of her life. And, and that was a long 15, 20 years. And, and so there's plenty of pictures of this, but the best picture is when Christ laid down his life for us. So are we growing in that type of love? In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Peter says to be fervent in this agape love. This type of love is not going to be easy. It requires us to be willing to go to the extra mile. It's more than just time-consuming. It's life-consuming. Remember, it is God who gives you the strength to love in this way. Jesus will grow in us this selfless love if we walk by the Spirit. And we know that the first manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit is love. And so I want you to go there. I think it's very important for us in Galatians 5 just to look at the fruit of the Spirit here. Because it's another list. It's another list, one that we should know by heart. So, if you got it, Galatians five. Say amen if you got it. All right, Galatians five twenty-two to twenty-three. Paul here gives us another list. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against which such things there is no law. And so the qualities here seem to observe in order from the more elemental to the more advanced. But they're all uh, facets of the Spirit's work in the life of a believer. They're aspects of the glory of the indwelling Christ that we have, right? His character is shown in the believer's character. One more point that needs to be made about agape love. If we do not love those around us, then we're being hypocrites. If we talk about this amazing God who transforms lives and we are enacting in love, then something is not adding up. Paul wrote to the Corinthians a rebuke in 1 Corinthians 13 because they were not loving each other, right? They were fighting. And so he teaches them, what does real love look like? And although we know this as the love chapter, it should be a chapter that causes us to look at the mirror. It's a rebuke chapter. And and Paul so. We're going to do this exercise here. Paul writes in verse 4 Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous. All right, so let's look in the mirror. We need to ask ourselves Have you been jealous? Are you mean? Are you impatient? It continues Love does not brag and is not arrogant. So you ask yourself, Look at that mirror again. Are you prideful? Do you boast about your gifts or talents? I know, I know, it stings, but we need to hear the truth here. Verse 5 continues, Love does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into an account a wrong, suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness. So have you been acting selfishly lately? Have you maybe not forgiven a brother or sister in Christ who has asked you for their forgiveness? And then verse 7 says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And so loving your brother means you're willing to forgive them, like Christ said, seven times seventy, a countless number of times. And then lastly in 1 Corinthians 13, if you jump to verse 13, you see there another small list, right? We have faith, hope, love, abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And so do you have a love that is sacrificial like the love of Christ? Do you abide by this love? Or do you have a worldly type of love that goes based on feelings? That goes based on getting everything your heart desires? If you don't get your way, then you know what? I don't have love for this person. I'm out of this marriage. Peter has not called us to grow in that type of worldly love. But rather he has called us to grow in the love that loves God with all our hearts, soul, strength and mind and loves our neighbor as ourselves. So I want you to listen to one more list right plenty of lists here there's plenty in the bible but i got one more list just to show you the contrast between believers and false teachers and so if you go to second timothy we're gonna see here another list all right so second timothy chapter three it's talking about false teachers You can go to verse 2 there. What does he call them? He calls them lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without one of our virtues, self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. And what are they lovers of? Lovers of pleasures. Rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, right? Another word in our text. Although they have denied its power. So that list of vices is directly contrasted to our list of virtues. We are called to grow in faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. So what will our response be? There really only are two ways to respond to this text. Will we obey God and supply what we need in our faith to grow? Or will we act like the false teachers that deny God and entangle themselves in the defilements of the world after hearing the truth? So, beloved, I implore you to obey God and to add to faith that which he has called us to supply. And so don't be like that kid in first grade that didn't take care of his plant, right? He was too busy playing his Game Boy. Ask yourself, what type of plant are you? Are you the type of plant that grows a little and then quickly dies? Are you the type of plant that doesn't get any water or sunshine? Are you the type of plant that is choked by the weeds of the world? That type of plant will perish for eternity. Or are you a plant That is supplied with all it needs. Are you a plant that goes daily to the one that provides living water? Are you the type of plant that cherishes your time with the son? The son of God who died for you so that you may have life? That plant will receive the crown of life, eternal life. And so what are you waiting for? God has given you his spirit and his word. You have no excuse. Is your faith supplied?